Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, April 6th. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We have a special treat for you this week. I know a lot of you started listening to us in the election year, and since then we've been talking a lot about what's going on on the Hill and in the policy world. But we actually have elections coming up. That's right. There's a big House special election coming up in Georgia in a couple weeks, and that is the source of our first data point this week. That's $8.3 million, the amount of money Democrat John Ossoff has raised which is worrying Republicans, even though this race is taking place in a pretty typically Republican district, Georgia's sixth, which was uh, vacated by Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price. We're going to talk about that. Also on the docket today, 66. That's the number of days that Steve Bannon, the White House chief strategist, spent on the National Security Council, controversially added in January and then taken off this week. And we're going to talk about how that's emblematic of broader shifts in the White House power structure happening at a critical time in foreign policy. One more number we're going to throw at you this week, 95. That is the number of workdays remaining on the House calendar as Republicans search for a big policy win in Washington. And we're going to talk through what's next on the legislative front and, uh, by extension, what people might be talking about when the election rolls around over a year from now. Two quick housekeeping notes before we dive in. Remember, if you have questions for us, please email us at nerdcast at politico.com. And also, if you're a fan of the Nerdcast, please subscribe, rate us, and write a written review at iTunes or your favorite podcast app. First this week, we've got a listener question. Phil from Des Moines, Iowa has written in with a really interesting one, and we have senior politics editor Charlie Matessian with us here to answer it. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Scott. How was vacation? It was excellent. Went to Hawaii. It was fantastic. Never been there before. Went to the beach. Went on hikes. Went to Pearl Harbor. You're such a history nerd. (laughs) It was great. It was great. All right. Here's our question from Phil. We've talked a lot in the past few weeks about the the health care bill going down and, well, never coming up for a vote in the House because it was going to go down. Phil's question is, imagine if the House of Representatives was a parliamentary body and all the different caucuses, wings, and factions were actually different political parties. Charlie, what would the majority look like? Who would form the governing coalition in that hypothetical setup? Man, I love that question. You ever notice the Iowans ask the most interesting questions? <laughs> uh, I guess, I don't know. I mean, what's really interesting to me is that it's all, the House is already looking more and more like a parliamentary body uh, in, in recent years. I guess my sense is that um, at the moment, the governing coalition wouldn't look all that different than the current majority does, uh, in part because I, I just don't think there are any true swing groups anymore, very few true centrists anymore, since the Blue Dogs and uh, Republican moderates are all but uh, extinct. Extinct. Uh, but I mean, I guess I, I would have to confess that I think the cultural dividing line between the two parties right now is so stark that it's really hard for me to envision uh, groups from one side of the chasm finding common purpose with groups on the other. So, you know, that's a long way of saying I can't even imagine in this current polarized house who would, who could work with each other that isn't already working with each other. I wonder – this is stretching the the limits of my 
kind of foreign parliamentary political knowledge, but I wonder if it would be a situation that you sometimes see where you have a minority governing party where uh, they hold control via plurality in a parliament and are susceptible at any moment to a vote of no confidence, but still kind of run the show based on uh, having more numbers than anyone else. And I, I wonder if Paul Ryan's kind of faction of the Republican Party still you know, has enough juice in the House to, that, that he would kind of occupy that role in a hypothetical American parliament. Scott, I skipped comparative politics in college for a reason. <laughs> I, I don't even know how to answer that. All right. Phil, thank you very much for your question. Remember, email us if you have questions of your own at nerdcast at politico.com. And let's switch from there into our first official data point of the week. And here to talk about it, we have national political reporter Eliana Johnson. Hey. And chief investigative reporter Ken Vogel. That's me. Hello. All right, Charlie. Refresh us on this district and what's happening here and the surprising special election situation that's developing. Well, it's not the first congressional special election of the Trump era. That one uh, took place on Tuesday in Los Angeles. But uh, this is the first one that will give us a real feel for the depth of uh, Democratic grassroots energy and fury. So because of that, it's being closely watched by both parties. Keep in mind that the Tuesday special election in L.A. was in a heavily Democratic district. So there really wasn't much that that was going to reveal. But this one, the one in in Georgia, is going to be a very useful indicator. uh, Because if you remove the Trump factor from that race, we would not even be talking about that. It's a conservative suburban Atlanta district. Uh, the incumbent, uh, who has been Tom Price for some time now, uh, typically wins by pretty large margins. It is a very comfortably Republican district. And what makes it so interesting is that this is a conservative Republican district, but it is a conservative Republican district that is not especially fond of Donald Trump. He won that district narrowly, but he also lost the core Atlanta suburbs. Um, and that was pretty surprising because you don't see a Republican nominee and uh, lose the uh, Republican suburbs in the South very often. And so uh, for all those factors, it's uh, being looked at as sort of an indicator race of uh, how people feel in the early weeks of the Trump era. And you mentioned that grassroots enthusiasm, this is a test for Democratic grassroots enthusiasm. That number, 8.3 million, I know uh, campaign finance sometimes gets a little wonky with without context. So 8.3 million is more than any House candidate has raised in an entire two-year election cycle since 2012, excepting Speaker Paul Ryan and former Speaker John Boehner. I mean, it's it's an astonishing amount of money that, that has forced Republican outside groups to, to pour a lot of their own resources in. I like Ken as the, the campaign finance maven and the expert here delve more into it. But I would say that that figure is crazy town. Like I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you just the, the simplest explanation. Because first of all, uh, it's a special election. So it's a huge, it would be a huge amount for a general election. It would be a huge amount for a competitive general election in the House. And, and here's the other thing. This is a candidate who hasn't run before. He is a 30-year-old former staffer. So it's not like he's really plugged into fundraising networks where he uh, would be able to raise lots of money. And the, and the last thing that I think is really interesting about the money, and it gives you a little uh, taste of just how juiced up the Democratic base is, almost all of that money has come from out of district. Can I just pour cold water on what you yes. just said? <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, it's a primary, but it's basically a general election for uh, the Democratic candidate because if uh, if Ossoff gets over 50% of the vote, um, he will essentially um, have won 
Um, he, he will have won. He gets yeah, the seat. He, he, he will. He will get the seat. Um, if a Republican um, keeps him under that amount, it will go to a runoff um, and the Republican is heavily favored. So I think that's um, in part why he's uh, raising more money. That said, uh, he has raised more money um, than any in, in the last quarter than any candidate who's not a self-funder. So it's a remarkable amount of money. But I think it's fair to look at it basically like a general election. And, and the reason why the money is so interesting is because, you know, it's a test of the Democratic base and the Democratic base's energy. And you see the, the Democratic base, if you're judging just by donation, donations is fired up and ready to go, to quote Barack Obama. Uh, on, the, on the right, not so much. You know, you could – I guess you could say you could expect that because of the uh, divided field. But it's forced the big money on the right to come to play. The Congressional Leadership Fund, this is a super PAC that's linked to House leadership. Uh, House Republican leadership has poured upwards of $2 million into the race. Democratic uh, super PACs haven't had to weigh in in the race because Ossoff has done such a good job or has been the beneficiary of such uh, blockbuster small money fundraising. I think that's an encouraging sign because, as we know from uh, some some of our past conversations here and from our our coverage of the Democracy Alliance, the Liberal Major Donor Club, Democratic major donors are also fired up, but they they, they have been able to keep their powder dry at least on this race. Uh, the combination of having an energized base with, with the, you know, the, the ability to turn on that small dollar spigot and energize big donors is pretty potent from a campaign money perspective. And I want to pick up on a point that Eliana made. I think, I think you're de- definitely right uh, about the, the, the race. And let's not get ahead of ourselves on whether the Democrat's going to win. And it's also important to note that it is a, one of the reasons that he's in contention is because it's a really big, crowded, fractured Republican field. If it was one-on-one, we wouldn't be talking about this race. But I do think it's, it's uh, an important race to watch just because the mere fact that we're talking about the prospect that he might hit 50% in the, uh, in, in the first race is revealing. I mean, he might win this outright. And Ian, this is not something that, uh, you know, outsiders like, you know, who from outside the district are saying, this is something that the NRCC has acknowledged. Uh, local Republicans have acknowledged that he might win it outright. And just that mere fact alone in a district like that, I think tells you something about the uh, the Democratic grassroots right now. Well, Eliana, I want to pull in something that both Ken and Charlie just said. I mean, the, the reason, not, not just to counter Ossoff's money, but there's, there's another reason that groups like Congressional Leadership Fund are pouring money into this race, right? The the if if Ossoff were to win, or even if he comes close, that sends kind of a, a chilling message about Republican legislative prospects and the Trump agenda to House Republicans in the forty or fifty or so districts that are less conservative than uh, this one, but are still held by by Republicans in the House, right? I think it would send an alarm signal. Um, Look, Republicans, um, after this race, they're looking at 2018. And they haven't been successful on the legislative front in the first 100 days of the Trump presidency. And I think if a Democrat um, shows he, in this race, has shown he's capable of raising money, if he he shows he's capable of turning that over into a victory, um, it's it's a disheartening sign for Republicans on the House level, even though the Senate still looks promising um, for Republicans to pick up seats in 2018. A lot of people have warned, you know, the House may be uh, maybe the bigger battlefront than the Senate in 2018. And so I think this uh, this race will be a good predictor on that front. I think that's a really good point. I and mean, one of the things about this district and part of the reason, like Charlie said, that it f- switched 
2016, at least at the presidential level, from being such a reliably deep red district to being one that Trump won by fewer than two points is that this is a, a white collar conservative district. But a lot of the Senate races this year are happening in blue collar conservative states, right? West Virginia, Montana, uh, Indiana. The 10. The 10. Gong. <laughs> right. Held by Democrats. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah, there are only two. There are only two real Republican targets up is Arizona and Nevada, and then the other. It's those ten Trump states that we've been talking about. Plus, you, you know, Tim Kaine in Virginia also is probably going to face a tough race. Man, it is a brutal Senate map when you take a look at what Democrats are defending compared to what Republicans are cont- uh, contending. But in a way, I think it's, it's it's potentially a good year for them to be, you know, having this difficult landscape. The the first midterm of a sitting president mm-hmm. is, you know, tends to be good for the opposition party and. You know, from what we've seen thus far from Trump, uh, it's, you know, it's pretty polarizing. It might not be so hard. It, it might be the best year that you could hope for to run against a, uh, you know, a, a, a Republican president as a Democrat in a red state. Well, c- well can you I- imagine if Hillary Clinton had won? What kind of situation? <laughs> right. The, yeah, totally. Exactly. The, those Senate Democrats would be in right I, now? I also think given the, the data that we have now on how Trump won, um, he won because a lot of Obama voters voted for him. So it will be really interesting to see how voters who became disillusioned when with Obama uh, vote in the midterm election where turnout's usually lower. Um, but their verdict on the first two years of the Trump presidency, I think, will be tremendously important. I think the best race is going to be Pennsylvania. I'm, I'm beginning. This is the Pennsylvania section. I mean, we can't go a single episode <laughs> without talking about uh, Pennsylvania. But not, not when you and Ken are here. Like, Charlie, no. we should just record you saying that, and then you don't even have to show up. We can just play Charlie <laughs> saying, I think the most interesting race will be in Pennsylvania. No, but he- here's why. Uh, the the prospect, I-, I don't know that it'll run. Uh, it seems to me like a lot of uh, hot air, but Mike Kelly uh, against Bob Casey, that'd be a fantastic race. It'll be the uh, the marquee Trump proxy war because you've got Western Pennsylvania uh, against Casey and the East, and uh, Kelly uh, made those sort of uh, infamous remarks about Obama staying in Washington to mess with the Trump uh, agenda. I mean, it would just become uh, money saturated, and it's just a fantastic race in a Trump state. But it, I mean, Casey is a is a great example of the type of Democrat who could be successful in uh, you know a, a swing state, a recently a red state, but a swing state, uh, you know, with a lot of money coming in against him. I mean, the, Casey is the. Uh, the the poster child for the you know the Reagan Democrats and uh, and I think it would be I mean you know certainly it's a it's a it's a compelling one to watch but I I'd, uh, I think Casey would have an edge early. Well, here's here's the thing though about Casey is like you mentioned he he he's not from Philadelphia right he's not he he kind of has that that. Um, non non national Democrat imprimatur but at the same time he's he's really swung left. Uh, since since Trump was elected, he's spoken out very, very harshly against Trump. He said he's going to filibuster uh, Neil Gorsuch, the Supreme Court nominee. He's I think he's he's voted against pretty much everything. Yeah, think, but I mean, he's still he's a, a opponent of abortion rights. He's a supporter. Oh, of he gun is rights, not anymore. You know? That is such a canard. He came to the Senate like that, but he totally changed. One thing, one more thing, I want to pick up on before we uh, finish off this segment. Eliana and Charlie talked about turnout. In, in 2018. And that's a another serious factor here in the special election that's coming up in Georgia. Like we said, it's an all-party primary. It's coming up April 18th. And special elections typically have horrible turnout. And so whichever side is more motivated, which again, from these 
fundraising numbers, we're getting the sense that it's it's Democrats. Whichever side is more motivated potentially has an advantage. And that's the thing that's really troubling Republicans. It's not just the, the money, but it's what the money means. If, you know, if people are estimating their turnout wrong and an extra 10 or 15,000 people turn out above estimates, then that could be the ballgame, right? Because as Eliana said, under the rules for special elections in Georgia, if you get more than 50% in this all-party primary, you win the seat. And, you know, it's hard to it's hard to know. I mean, we in the media are notoriously bad at figuring out turnout, as we proved in November 2016. And what we saw on Tuesday in L.A. was pretty low turnout. Um, and so who knows what happens in Atlanta? Is, it, is there going to be a huge turnout in that district or uh, is all, a lot of the energy we're seeing in that race coming from, uh, you know, young uh, Atlanta millennials coming out knocking doors in, in a suburban uh, district? I, I don't really know. I mean, it's, it's hard to say, but it's a great indicator race for just that reason. Our next data point is the number 66, and that's how many days White House Chief Strategist Steve Bannon spent on the National Security Council after he was controversially added in in January and then removed this week. And uh, for this, I want to bring in senior reporter Nancy Cook. Nancy, hello. Hey, thanks for having me. Eliana, tell us what happened here. What does it mean for how the White House is conducting national security and foreign policy right now? Hit me with the small questions, Scott. Um, (laughs) Okay. So I actually think this is the first big inflection point of uh, – well, actually, uh, maybe after healthcare, But um, I think Bannon's removal from the National Security Council and his, uh, you know, shift in the power dynamics in the White House um, away from Steve Bannon towards Jared Kushner um, – really marks a sort of normalization of this White House. Certainly, um, Bannon's removal from the National Security Council came down in a memo yesterday um, issued by the president, but really uh, National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster was behind it. And the memo um, really introduced um, a normal uh, National Security Council process. It's just what it looked like in previous administrations. Um, that is not the National Security Council or the National Security process that uh, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn had put in place, which um, the director of national, which uh, were in which national security meetings of the National Security Council did not include Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, the Director of National Intelligence. This reverses all that, removes Steve Bannon, and uh, things look uh, traditional and normal once again. Um, Beyond that, um, we had a story up last night, uh, Ken and I, um, about the broader power dynamics in the White House that have Steve Bannon very unhappy, um, at odds with Jared Kushner, and uh, he threatened to leave the White House and was convinced to stay by Republican megadonor uh, Re- Rebecca Mercer. Wow. So <laughs> thanks thanks for the dramatic <laughs> dramatic commentary. Um, yeah, so um, I-, I think we're starting to see, um, you know, Jared Kushner, who's taking on a lot of responsibilities, um, you know, try to normalize this place. Um, maybe if I could use the word normal a couple more times, that'd be good. But um, <laughs> but yeah, anybody else? Wanna, Which is like pretty telling, right? That Jared Kushner is the one who is trying to bring stability and some sense of direction to a White House. Uh, you know, 36-year-old uh, New York City kid who was in real estate and media and tech before becoming the arguably the most powerful advisor in the White House. And as a result of that, something that uh, my colleagues Josh Dossie, Alex Eisenstadt, and I have written about, there is 
quite a bit of resentment within the White House towards Kushner and his outsized portfolio and his outsized influence with the president of the United States, his father-in-law. Um, and so you see this power struggle going on. And it's, you know, look, I mean, you look at Bannon and Bannon also doesn't have uh, didn't have any prior government experience. But what he does have is this sort of sense of the the pulse of conservatives and where the conservative movement is at this particular moment, this populist nationalism that really undergirded Trump's call it the conservative movement. Well, that's a good point. But it's the current it's the current state (laughs) of the Republican Party. Is, I mean, the head of the Republican Party is this populist whose message was shaped by Steve Bannon down the stretch. And you have uh, the folks who are the traditional Washington hands, Republicans, who have allied themselves with Bannon, with Reince Priebus, the chief of staff, who is you know not, not by any stretch a, a nationalist, but has sort of seen that this was the way to uh, deliver on the campaign promises and to keep abreast of sort of where the conservative movement or the Republican Party, at least, is at this particular moment. They're deeply suspicious of Jared Kushner, who they see as a social liberal uh, and, uh, you know, even an economic moderate, certainly not a protectionist. Uh, and I think they are losing and Kushner is winning. And Bannon's getting booted off this uh, the National Security Council, removed, stepping down, however you want to put it, is, is an indicator that the tide is sort of turning. And Whenever we discuss these internal dynamics at the White House or really in Trump world more generally, uh, I think there's a tendency among people – I certainly see it on Twitter whenever I write about this – people like, you know, Kushner's in for a rude awakening. I'm like, no. Anyone who allies themselves against Kushner is in for a rude awakening and this news that we're talking about now I think is an indicator of that. Well, I do want to note – one administration official pointed out to me yesterday – Bannon never actually attended National Security Council meetings, and he still attends all of the president's meetings with world leaders. And so day to day, this doesn't really change his role in the White House. And so I do think it remains to be seen how this will all shake out. Um, What was most noteworthy, I think, about his elevation to the National Security Council was um, its deviation from historical norms. And so I think the renormalization of that um, symbolizes that H.R. McMaster has been empowered and is committed to uh, regularizing the National Security Council process. And Bannon's uh, clash with Jared Kushner is a very real thing. Well, I also feel like the foreign policy challenges just came to the forefront so much this week that I feel like there was a lot of pressure to, you know, have a strong National Security Council in place. You know, you have uh, what happened in Syria uh, with the, uh, you know, chemical gassing of Syrian people. You have the upcoming China visit. And I feel like the stakes are just huge right now. And there's a sense that you have to do this. But the other broader thing that I feel like keeps happening in the West Wing is that, you know, they're not hiring people uh, broadly throughout the agencies or for all these key political jobs. Meanwhile, they just keep broadening the portfolio of each person. And I felt like it was sort of a joke this week where Jared Kushner, you know, was in Iraq on Sunday. And then the week before was also put in charge of this, you know, American innovation group that was supposed to sort of McKinsey consulting the White House and make it more effective. He's got, yeah, all he has to do is fix the government, bring peace to the Middle East, (laughs) renegotiate (laughs) trade deals with China, Mexico, and Canada. In fact, there was a funny, we wrote about this, there's a funny headline in The Onion uh, that said that Jared Kushner moves 
piece in the Middle East to next week's Outlook calendar because he was too busy. <laughs> and as we wrote about in the uh, in our story on Kushner and his growing portfolio and the resentment to that, that story was actually passed around the White House among staffers who are are resentful of of uh, Jared Kushner and they kind of got to laugh at his expense. But it's not just Kushner. I mean, I feel like Kushner is the most high profile person with a huge portfolio. But, you know, I've been doing some reporting lately and Don McGahn, the White House uh, counsel, you know, he has a huge portfolio too. He's starting to get involved in the personnel process of picking people. He was instrumental in picking the new uh, labor secretary pick, Alexander Acosta. He's involved in shepherding the Supreme Court person. He's in charge of Neil Gorsuch. He's also involved in, um, you know, also also just all of the ethics issues and the vetting. And so each of these like key players, this tight circle around Trump just has so many things that they're involved in. And I think the question moving forward is, can you do any of these things well? Yeah, I mean, the, I agree with you that there are all these little fiefdoms and that people who are in their inner circle have the ability to build fiefdoms and challenge other fiefdoms. But there's only one Jared Kush is only one Ivanka Trump, and they are the ones who are sort of the arbiters of the battles between the fiefdoms, and they get to decide, uh, you know, who wins the battle. Let me just get back though to uh, uh, what we were saying about the the foreign policy challenges. Of course, that's uh, you know that's real and that's significant, and you and you might, uh, as Ileana suggested, look at the moves on the NSC and uh, divine that they were moving towards a more professionalized, traditional approach towards handling those foreign policy challenges, but. Your, well, you mentioned the, the chemical attack in Syria, apparently by Assad. Uh, the, the, it, it brings to light just how much it is all about Trump and Trump's, you know, whims, really, uh, to, that, that he will override any sort of carefully constructed foreign policy based upon, in this case, seeing the video of the victims of this apparent chemical seeing attack. The TV. He yeah, he saw the that TV. and he said that. He admitted that. that like, he ch- it changed his mind. And I'm sure, you know, there's, there's certainly people in the U.S. foreign policy community who are, who are like, good, that's great. We want you to be, have like, a, a robust, aggressive stance uh, towards Syria and towards Assad. And um, if that's what it took, that's fine. Uh, but there are others who are like, you know, uh, who are like pulling out their hair, thinking like, we've been trying to like shape this policy and put together all these white papers and studies and analysis. And like, you see a video and, and make your decision based on that. Um, so it, it does sort of show that no matter no matter how you structure things, and no matter how carefully the, the administration plans, it is all about Trump and his decision-making criteria is certainly different. At least he's admitting it in a way that's different than any other uh, you know, recent president that we've seen, I think. It is really interesting to see all of this coming to the fore uh, with the, the, the staffing and the, the personnel, the White House and the administration as we reach this kind of major point in their foreign policy dealings in the first 100 days here, right? You, we've got the, the Syria... Uh, atrocity. We've got North Korea launching missiles. We've got that big meeting with China coming up. What should we expect from that coming up next week? There's obviously trade and North Korea are going to be huge issues on the table. I still think that it's not until there's some kind of real foreign policy crisis that that we will know um, how the president makes foreign policy decisions, whether he listens to the input of his close advisors and whether um, the White House is, um, you know, whether this whole thing holds together over the long term. Yeah. And I think just what we've seen in the lead up to the China visit, you know, you had Rex Tillerson when he was in Beijing basically using 
the preferred language of the Chinese to talk about some of their diplomatic relations, which in China signals that like you basically agree with them. Um, and, you know, we have Trump here who doesn't like to follow a script, whereas the Chinese really sort of like things mapped out. And so I think that there are, you know, some people around Trump who understand Chinese policy. Uh, you know, there's a good person in the White House, Mark Pottinger, but there's no one at state. And it's unclear, like, even if you have some prep, will Trump follow it? and follow what he's supposed to do with the president of China. Yeah, I would, I would point out, you know, N- Trump's ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley, has really become the leading voice of foreign policy in the administration uh, because Rex Tillerson has played such a behind-the-scenes role. Um, he, he's not, a, he doesn't speak in public very often. And she has really distinguished her views from those of Trump, um, particularly on Russia, taking a much more hawkish stance. Um, she is been out out front on Syria as well. But it's not until there's some sort of crisis or the president is forced to make a decision that we'll know um, whose views carry more water. And and one more point on uh, this question of like whose views will end up being most influential with Trump. You know, we talk about McMaster and the uh, sort of him taking authority over the NSC. You know, that's a great change from uh, just a few weeks ago when we revealed in Politico that McMaster had actually urged the firing of one of his NSC staffers, a guy by the name of Ezra Cohen Watnick, who was the intel director at the NSC, uh, Jared Kushner and Steve Bannon uh, overruled him essentially, went to Donald Trump and said, hey, we want this guy to stay on and we don't want McMaster to sideline him. And Trump said, yes, let's keep him on. Now, the, the reason why I bring that up, in addition to this question about who whose views will reign supreme in the uh, you know, in, in, uh, foreign policy, Trump's administration foreign policy, this, this guy, Ezra Cohen-Watnick, also played a key role in uh, the Devin Nunes saga. He was uh, one of the people who either provided the intelligence or uh, sort of discerned that the intelligence was worth providing to Nunes about the incidental surveillance of Trump's foreign policy, uh, I'm sorry, of Trump's uh, team during the uh, transition. And uh, Nunes, of course, made great hay out of this and took this to the White House. And Democrats cried foul, saying that uh, he was politicizing his investigation of Trump's Trump team's uh, uh, relations with Russia and and, uh, Russia's meddling in the election. And, well, we saw today the sort of full circle that Nunes being yanked from chairmanship of the Intelligence Committee during this or being yanked from heading this this investigation into uh, Trump and Russia. Yet another one of the big changes going on in the Republican foreign policy setup right now. Uh, One to watch, especially with a big week coming up. All right, let's start talking about our third and final data point this week. That is the number 95. That's how many Washington workdays are left on the House of Representatives schedule for 2017, which means they're already one third of the way through. They've done 50 days already this year. And though there's been action on a few issues like deregulation, Senate's moving to confirm Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court this week. The Republican Party's big priorities are still looming over them. So what's next? Nancy, we've got health care continuing to be worked on kind of in the background. We've got tax reform maybe up next. What what What's coming up in Congress that's going to affect the uh, the policy going forward, the politics going forward in Washington? Well, I think health care is basically dead, although I feel like they'll, they'll still continue to talk about it because it's something that they promised the base they would do for seven years. But this past week, you know, Vice President Pence took the lead in trying to get another health care deal. Um, there are a lot of uh, White House staffers who are sort of getting blamed for not being able to pass it, uh, including Rick Dearborn, who's a deputy assistant um, uh, 
or deputy, excuse me, chief of staff at the White House, but is also in charge of legislative affairs. And so he's bearing some of the blame for this. But what Pence offered basically to conservatives was to give states more flexibility to opt out of certain um, aspects of Obamacare. And basically, House Republicans just don't really trust the White House at all at this point, and don't feel like they're negotiating with them in good faith and want to see the text of a bill. So that's sort of failing. But meanwhile, they're going to keep up the health care chatter. Simultaneously this week, we also saw the White House turn to tax reform. Uh, they're turning to it much sooner than they thought because of health care's failure, and they really don't have a game plan moving forward. And so Secretary of Treasury Mnuchin and Gary Cohen, who's the director of the National Economic Council, met with Trump last week to kind of come up with some broad consensus. But really, it's very early days on that. They're totally unorganized. And so it's this dynamic, similar to health care, where they're like desperate for a political win on it, but they don't necessarily have a clear path forward. You know, that reminds me of something Eliana just mentioned in the last segment and about how the effect that Trump himself has on all this. And the, he's got advisors working on different policy areas and so on and so forth. But really, you know, as we saw this week, right, Charlie, with that big New York Times interview, with the other public statements he's made, it's Trump who can move the ball on this like no other and sometimes in in directions that fellow Republicans don't anticipate. And I think the only reason we're talking about health care now, because, I mean, maybe health care is not dead, but it's bleeding out. And I think the only reason that we're talking about it is because Trump wants an accomplishment. I think he found it to be a really searing experience. I think he was embarrassed by it. He thought, you know, he said, you know, he thought pretty much thought things were going to be easier. And so right now he enters, you know, uh, is coming into 100 days and doesn't have these bi- this big signature accomplishment that he was looking forward to. And I think he's putting tons of pressure on his staff and keeping this ball rolling on the hill, even though it really doesn't have uh, any prospects of uh, of going anywhere. I mean, because even if you do have Freedom Caucus members conceding on some points, as they seem to be doing, uh, every for every Freedom Caucus member you pull on board, you, they seem to be losing a moderate or a moderate conservative. So I still don't see how the math works there. He's got it. Sort of stuck in his head. I agree that he, you know, Eliana talked about the the change at the NSC as being an inflection point, and, and maybe it is. But I think the real inflection point, or what's driving so much of their strategy, to the extent that you can even call it that, and their approach, is the healthcare failure. He is like deeply, you know, take took that deeply personally, and it was such a, a rude awakening, not just for him, the president, but for his team. I mean. Uh, Dan Balls had a story this week uh, that that kind of went through the the TikTok of of the you know the collapse of their hundred days, and he said that initially come again they had planned they had this like timetable and they had planned to have had a, re, a repeal Obamacare and have replaced it by February twenty fourth. They hadn't even introduced their uh, their healthcare bill by that t- time. So you see the way they're just recalibrating. And we talked a little bit about Steve Mnuchin saying that they would have tax reform done by August. I mean, not going to happen. Well, I think part of the point that Dan Balt's story made, and, and we've made this point too in Politico stories, is, you know, they kind of start from scratch every time. And so the campaign wrote a tax plan, the transition wrote a tax plan, but now it's like those things don't even exist. And now there's new players like Gary Cohen and Mnuchin who are going to write their own tax plan. Even while some Republicans in Congress are working on their own independently, right? right? Well, Ryan and uh, Chairman Brady of the House Ways and Means Committee, they have their own plan. 
And so there's like very, you know, there's this attempt to get everyone to build a consensus around it. But it's just so interesting to me that we have a Republican controlled White House and Congress, which they haven't had in years, and they are totally unable to build any consensus or coalitions around here's what they're going to do. I mean, this is a chance for them really to make huge policy changes. Yeah, I think just from a, a meta perspective, it reflects the difference between governing and running a business. You know, if you're running a business and you're trying to broker a big real estate deal and you don't get the deal that you want, you can just walk away from the table and go find someone else to make a deal with. You can't walk away from the Congress and go find another Congress to make a deal with. And what you, what you were hitting at, Nancy, this idea that like each time a, a new sort of fiefdom, uh, you know, is elevated within within Trump's orbit and uh, they want to take a shot at, at creating the plan for whatever the issue is, and they just scrap everything that came before that, there is a, a like a collateral cost to that. You can't just keep on starting over, both because of the timing and because conceivably, if you're doing this right, you're bringing along congressional allies each time you make a plan. And if you scrap it and start over, you got to start over on that front too. Well, I also just feel like there is a tremendous amount of you know, sense that you need to get things done in the first 100 days and particularly and even by the August recess, you know, you need to have Senate confirmed positions in you want to have some legislative wins, because by then people will already start looking to 2018. And I feel like they're not racking up those points. Now, let's think about the, the human element here, too, with Trump. I mean, it's not like he is inscrutable. He's not inscrutable in the way that maybe Barack Obama was or even uh, George W. Bush to some degree or, or Bill Clinton. He's laid out his philosophy of life. You know, he's written it. He has he uh, has a management theory that's very clear to everyone. I mean, he believes in big, shiny things. He believes that he needs a big accomplishment. He believes in splashy diversions. I mean, he, he's very upfront about all this. And I think the frustration is that he doesn't have any of those. And he thought this was going to be a pretty easy endeavor. And he's learning the hard way about the complexity of governance. But he doesn't necessarily believe in what those particular accomplishments should look like. He wants to have a health care bill. He doesn't really care so much about the details of what that health care bill uh, would look like. And that's sort of another aspect of it that I think in some ways should make it easier, you know, that he's that he's flexible and he's willing to sort of go where he sees the momentum uh, but it hasn't turned out that way. It's left a lot of conservatives questioning his commitment to the causes that they believe in and uh, hasn't really resulted in any kind of ability to work across the aisle with Democrats, which is something they keep talking about in this theoretical sense that if the House Freedom Caucus isn't going to come along with us, maybe we'll go reach deals with uh, Democrats. Well, good luck with that. Democrats aren't going to let you off that easy. They are looking at 2018 uh, and they don't want to be seen as either helping you uh, helping you because helping helping Trump will end up hurting them. I think the notion, the whole notion of ideology perplexes and confounds Trump. I, mean, I, I think it's just a, a foreign concept to him. He is accustomed, and I don't mean that to, to disparage the guy. I mean, I'm, the, I, I think he is accustomed to operating in a universe that is entirely transactional. It is the way he thinks. It is the the principle that governs all of his thinking. And so the idea that he also has to factor in ideology and that people might actually have values uh, that that they're not willing to uh, go against uh, to in, in the pursuit of a deal, I think has been very uh, troubling for him. He thinks his friends are his friends, you know, like he remember he said the nice things about uh, Mark Meadow, who ended up 
shiving him in the back. He said that he's my friend and I like him. I mean, you see it in the New York Times interview. The the like the, the worst thing that he could say as far as like staying on message is talking about Bill O'Reilly's sexual harassment. Yet he went there and he said, I don't think Bill did anything wrong. He told our former colleagues uh, Glenn Thrush and Maggie Haberman that in this New York Times interview. And you could see in the transcript, they printed the transcript, Hope Hicks, uh, top communications there for the White House, to say, can we move on to infrastructure now? <laughs> and he just had to say that uh, Bill O'Reilly should have settled those lawsuits and he should uh, and he didn't do anything wrong. And, and there was a lot of stories off of that. And it just goes to show how difficult it is to like keep him on message and also how much he values loyalty over ideology. I want to pivot back to the Freedom Caucus and and the role that they're playing within the Republican Party in Washington right now, within this hunt for policy wins for the GOP. Nancy, I want to ask you a question. I, we were just talking about Trump's uh, flexibility in terms uh, – he wants accomplishments, but the, the details of them aren't necessarily as clear. I wonder, is that something that's hurting him in negotiations with folks like the Freedom Caucus because they feel like they can they can move him and that they feel like uh, – by uh, opposing him, they might be able to get him to move as opposed to if he was a more conventional president kind of laying down the law, he might be able to exert more pressure on them. I feel like it's hurting him in negotiations with the Freedom Caucus because not because they're they're sort of wondering how much they can move him, but because they don't trust him. And so, you know, he'll invite them to the White House and they'll, you know, he'll offer up different things of a plan. But there's a general feeling that he doesn't have enough grasp of the policy that he won't necessarily follow through on what they've asked for. And so they just don't trust kind of the offers that are being made. Um, and also just broadly, I would say conservatives, this includes people in the Freedom Caucus, but this also includes constituencies that helped elect Trump and groups that advised him during the transition, like the Heritage Foundation or the Club for Growth or all these different things. There's just a question of, you know, is Trump going to be conservative enough? And we've seen that opposition with the health care bill. And I feel like we'll see some opposition with the tax reform uh, package, too, if he sort of strays from that question of real conservative values. And I think Trump is also hitting up against the wall uh, that the Freedom Caucus are a group of political untouchables. And, and what I mean by that is they there is no leverage that, that anyone has against them because they sit in such strongly conservative districts that the answer no will never hurt them. They will never be threatened. Their only threat is in the primary and they will not have a problem in the primary as long as the answer is always no. That's how conservative the districts they represent are. I mean, you see a similar thing on, on the left. I mean, with some of the more progressive members, same thing. They are politically untouchable. They are unmovable because of the nature of their hardcore districts. Yeah, and it's, there seems to be sort of a naivete among the Trump team about this, this idea that somehow they could leverage the popular support that Trump had in some of these, uh, you know, white working class districts to use against the House Freedom Caucus members. You saw Dan Scavino, the White House social media director and a longtime uh, Trump guy, actually started as Trump's caddy, interestingly, and is now the White House social media director. But he tweeted that Justin Amash, uh, representative from Michigan, member of the House Freedom Caucus, in good standing, uh, that they might have to primary him. And I'm like, primaries come from the right. I don't think you understand this. You're not getting to Justin Amash's right. You know what I mean? Like, good luck getting, you're going to, what are you going to primary like Mark Meadows from the center, like put up a Rockefeller Republican against him? <laughs> that shows just a complete lack of understanding of the way politics works. This this has been tried against Amash. The Chamber of, the U.S. Yeah, Chamber exactly. of Commerce. Yeah, and, and, and I should say that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and some of the, the Republican establishment groups that went in against Amash in the primary tried to run to his center, 
they have a real political organization. They spent a ton of money uh, and came up short. And Trump doesn't have a real political organization, despite efforts by Rebecca Mercer and some of the major donors and consultants to build an outside group. They don't really have that, uh, and they haven't shown the ability to, uh, you know, to, to to really weigh in in any of these districts in, in a way that that could uh, be determinative in a primary. Well, I also just feel like the ascendancy of the Jared Kushner wing of the White House, like with Gary Cohen um, and Dina Powell, is just going to further alienate uh, you know, the Freedom Caucus because those are not people that are on the same page policy-wise as these hardcore House Republicans. Yeah, I mean that's – yeah, if you want to run a primary, maybe you could run like a Gary Cohn, Goldman Sachs, New York City Republican against Justin Amash. Like we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think I have an idea of how that would go again. Let's let's leave it there. Thank you all for being here this week. Nancy Cook, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Charlie. Bye, Scott. Ken, thank you as always. Yeah, hey, fun time as always. And thank you as always to our listeners. Remember, please send us emails, questions, comments at nerdcast at politico.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and write a written review at iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And as always, a big thank you to executive producer Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator Bill Cookman, and Nerdcast researcher and Politico web producer Zach Montalaro. We will talk to you next week. <laughs>